Are you born creative? Creativity is this mystical thing that quite often people think, well, I was born creative. I have lots of ideas. Or they say things like, I am not creative. And then they don't come up with ideas. And it's really interesting when you examine what is creativity? Where does it come from? Is it inherent inside you? Are you born with it? Is it something you can build and develop? Well, this episode... Let's get creative. What would it take to become the hero of your own life? To build the business you've always dreamt of? To make money doing something you love? It's time to take control. Can we get on with making money and having fun now? I'm not doing it if it's not fun. Join the rebellion with Alan Donegan and welcome to Rebel Entrepreneur. I'm so pumped for this topic, Alan. (laughs) Me too. I cannot wait. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. I'm here with my business partner, the legend, Simon Payne. You've called me a legend today. How very kind of you, Alan. (laughs) I guess I am a legend. A legend. In some small circles in the UK, you are a legend. Only in small circles, but like crop circles. (laughs) Some do wonder where you came from. Welcome to the creativity episode. This is episode 11 of The Rebel Entrepreneur, and it is about ideas and creativity. And Simon, Simon has become the person that I most love to brainstorm with, because when we get together, the ideas flow, Simon. And what I want to do is dig into how does that happen? Where does it come from? Why doesn't it happen with most people? And why, actually, there's a few people we can do it with, but why is it so unpredictable whether we're creative or not? So let, let's start with, do you think people are born creative, Simon? Absolutely, 100% my belief that every single one of us is born creative. I was chatting to Jamie Smart, a friend of mine. Uh, Jamie's an author, and he's got the riff that I think both of us have heard a few times of... You know that thing when you were learning to walk and uh, you fell over a few times? You didn't just sort of lay on the floor and your parents leave you there to go, well, it looks like uh, he's or she's not a walker. This one's um, not a walker. We give no, up at this stage. We, we do what we can to overcome whatever circumstances that we're in, which means that we've got an ability to learn things. So, you know, we learn pretty early on about gravity. And, you know, we learn a few hard lessons as we're growing up, but certainly in the early days. And then from those learnings, we generate new ideas. And every single one of us has an ability to create in whatever creativity that means for you, whatever problems that you want to solve, whatever new things you get excited about. You know, last night we're gazing up at the sky with my, with my eldest and there's a, there's a series of satellites going across the sky that you can see because the sky was so clear. And I was looking up at that and going, that is phenomenal in the sense that someone came up with that idea. Or more importantly, a whole bunch of people have come up with a series of ideas over time that lead us to be able to put these things in space uh, and you know, deliver all sorts of information and, and benefits and, and opportunities to us uh, here on little old planet Earth. So short answer, yes, absolutely. And you made an interesting point about the compounding effect of ideas and creativity over time. And I find that really interesting because creativity is not a one and done and ta-da, I've got the idea. Creativity is a state of coming up with slight improvements quite often, slight improvements, slight making things better. And you're constantly improving and creating new ways of doing things. Very rarely is it, I've had a dream and then you make it happen. It's a continual process of creativity. But let, let's stick where we are. We'll come back to that compounding bit. I absolutely agree. I believe people are born creative. One of the best talks I've ever seen on that is Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, which is all about creativity and how formal education actually trains it out of us. What do you think about the role of formal education in this, Simon? Well, I think it's clear to me that and I can see it with my kids so I've got I've got three kids and they are in sort of um, descending scale of apparent creativity based on age so the four-year-old does exactly all of the things that Ken Robinson talks about in that talk I know exactly which TED talk you're you're talking about I think that was probably the first one I watched and it just made me go wow 
this is exactly the case because the four-year-old will draw a picture and he says, look, I've drawn this for you. And I go, wow, George, thank you for drawing that for me. What is it? And then he said, you know, he gives me some description of whatever it is that he's drawn. And it's uh, it's a picture of you, dad, or it's a picture of a tank or, you know, whatever it is that he's drawn. They all look the same, of course. But the fact that he's willing to put pencil and pen to paper, create something and without fear to show it to someone to go, look, I made this. And I think what happens, you know, as we get older and we are exposed to those school environments we develop this fear of being judged and, and, you know, some of us find that tough at different times in our life. And, you know, we, uh, I have to tell you this, Alan, I went to, you don't know this. I, I entered a dance competition at school. <laughs> All right. It wasn't that funny. I entered a dance competition at school and I think I was about something like, uh, 14 or 15 years old. Right. So I was part of the, I was sort of on the fringes of the, the sports, you know, I was kind of, I was just about scraping into the football teams and I've got no idea what cricket's all about. I still don't understand that game now, but I was in the cricket team and I was sort of doing, I was doing pretty well at sport, but I wasn't in the, in the core group of sports folk, but also I wasn't really one of the, the kind of uh, the academic nerds either. I sort of fell between two stools. I was just creative and just exploring lots of different things. And I saw this dance competition. I thought I'll enter that. I'll enter that on my own practiced in my room came up with this dance routine competition day arrived and I suddenly realized that I was the only guy not only was I doing this on my own I was the only male that had entered this competition (laughs) and it was in front of the entire school now that was an that was that was the beginning and the end of my dancing career however Alan I've got to tell you this I came third I'm very proud of that I'm very proud of that but I think I think that, you know, call this, uh, maybe there's something missing in my brain, but the thing behind this is about being confident to share your ideas, regardless of what people may or may not think of them. And that was a moment of me, I've got some ideas here and I'm going to express them in a very public way. And, uh, oh no, that's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? I probably won't do that again. Now that could have been the end of my creativity right there and then because of the pain of the you know school friends you know that were you know whispering and laughing going like look at this guy in the hat who does he think he is you know and Justin Timberlake hadn't even arrived then if he had arrived then I might have had some solidarity and someone to point to him and go look this guy can do it he's cool so can I but you know there's this thing about you know our you know judgment by our peers about having to conform to certain rules uh, and you know, behave in a certain way and do certain things. And and as we get older, of course, in school, the school system is designed to move a thousand, two thousand young people aged between the ages of eleven and eighteen around buildings and classrooms in a very safe way, so that they they're not naughty and people's lives aren't at risk. And I and I admire them for being able to do that. But of course, the flip side of having to follow these rules, follow curriculums that have been set by a government and so on, is that it doesn't leave a lot of room for people to express themselves. And that's, that's why that creativity is starting to you know, get ebbed out of our soul the further into formal education we get in our, in our young years. You know, And I think there's several things in there that you said. One was about being cool. And I think actually creativity and trying new things and being open to fail is not cool when you're young. So you want to look cool around your friends. You want to fit in. I think there's a deep desire for young people to fit in. But actually, that desire to fit in is the antithesis of what you need if you want to be an entrepreneur and be successful in life. Because the people who shake stuff up, the people who make progress are the rule breakers who go, I don't fit in, I'm proud, I'm doing things differently. And look at the results I'm getting. I'm having fun, I'm making money, I'm doing stuff. And it's the confidence to break the rules and do things differently and risk judgment by your peers and society, just as you said. Yeah, exactly that. And I think, you know, we've got this thing of um, of of celebrating what someone creates, rather than celebrating the act of creating something. Do you know what I mean by that? It's all the sense of that when, when some, you know, if someone's got some artistic talent, for example, and then they make a picture or paint a picture or they draw a sketch, you go, wow, look at that sketch. What a fantastic result. And Mm. I think this leads us to compare uh, our own ideas and creativity 
with someone that's uh, got some natural talent and I bet they've practiced for hours and hours and hours, but it doesn't feel like practice to them because it's their passion. But, you know, I think one of the things that slowed me down uh, from doing amazing creative output um, and perhaps perhaps less in business, but certainly to an extent in the early days, more in terms of art and music, is this perfection paralysis. And, um, you know, we should be celebrating someone putting an idea out, whatever that idea is. It doesn't really matter what it is, and it doesn't really matter if it's any good. It's you're doing an idea. You've come up with something. You've joined some dots, and you're putting, you, you know, you, you're expressing yourself creatively and putting something out there that's fantastic. Keep doing that. And it's that it's the numbers game of creativity of, you know, generating ideas, prototyping, trying, experimenting, you know, rather than the thing that you mentioned at the start, the, the ta-da, I've got an idea and everything rests on this one idea. Oh no, no, that idea that you think you've got is just the very beginning of the journey. But I think this is the key bit that actually stops people. So if we look at the barriers to creativity, I think you've hit on one of the major ones there, which is perfection paralysis, which I believe is rooted in we live in a judgmental society. People are judgmental of your ideas. We're constantly saying that's good, that's bad, this is wrong, that's great, that's wrong. And actually, people more likely to pick out what's wrong with the situation. The human brain is trained to look for what's wrong. So you get a bunch of judgmental people who tell you everything that's wrong with your business idea, your plan, your YouTube channel. They will point out every mistake and then expect you to push on regardless, feeling confident and positive. Like, how does that work? When I've had those judgmental people, they've crushed my confidence and then I go away and build it on my own without talking to anyone and go, screw them, I'm just going to do it myself. Um, but that judgment, I think it's the judgment, Simon, in society and culture and from people that is the real problem here. You just reminded me, Alan, I ran a session for a famous uh, airline a few years ago and it was a creativity session. And in the room was someone very senior in the finance department for this company. And right, at, imagine, imagine you've got a bunch of big hitters in the room, you know, 12 to 15 senior people in the room about to solve one of the most pressing challenges facing that organization. And we're about to start the session and she interrupts the flow. And she said, well, don't ask me to come up with any ideas because I'm not creative at all. I'm the accountant. And I think, you know, can you imagine the creative, any creative energy that was in the room, people that were fearing, you know, judgment and, uh, you know, all of the, the politics and challenges that exist when you're working in a big company. Imagine any creativity that people might have arrived with was floating out of the window just in that second. <laughs> she completely devolved herself of all responsibility for idea generation. And I think I said this to you before, I always wonder if it was because she was an accountant and the words creative accounting shouldn't appear in the same sentence. Maybe that was her barrier, I don't know. But the fascinating bit about that day was that about two-thirds through the day, she came up with an idea that was a, you know, a compounding effect of lots of conversations that it had. This idea was the idea that was adopted by the entire organization, completely changed the way that they look at carbon offsetting. And it came about as a result of the person that said that she wasn't creative, putting stuff out there and others doing the same. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. The, the judgment of our ideas, I think we fear the judgment of others, whether that's real or not. But I also think we are judging the ideas ourselves. And lots of folk that, uh, you know, when you're having idea sessions, they don't say anything out loud or they perhaps water down their idea or wait until someone else says something first before they share it. Uh, and they're, they're killing off their own ideas in their head before they even put it out there. So, you know, anyone that's listening to this podcast, I, I bet you can, you can relate to this thing of, you know, having some thoughts about ideas in your head. And it, it's almost like cerebral 
clay pigeon shooting. Like every every clay that gets thrown up in the air in your mind, you're shooting it down before it's had the chance to even, you know, practically get off the ground. And ideas ideas are precious. They need to live and breathe. And for that to happen, they need to be said out loud without fear of judgment and, and, and riffed on and built on. And I think we had a conversation a couple of days ago, Alan, about what when it was in my head, it felt like a brand new idea. But of course, it's not. It's we've had this idea it's been circling around for probably five six maybe even longer seven eight years and the ideas they come around again they've got different spins on them and you know let's stop killing them in our heads and let's give them a bit of airtime. well i think that's the second form of judgment you get external judgment and you have internal judgment and so many people i watch them do it you can almost see their eyes flicker like i've had an idea and then they flicker down when they talk to themselves and go, no, that won't work. And then they sit there silently. And I think some of the toughest critics and judges are our own internal self, where we put out an idea and in our brain, and before we even say it, we kill it ourselves. I think you're right. And I think there's something about the first killer of this stuff is perfection, as you said. And, and maybe the it makes me think the second is is about ego. And I remember in a, something like uh, 2004, something like that, 2005, um, I was doing some work for a charity in the, in the UK and uh, a bunch of conversations led to an idea and I shared this idea and everyone went, wow, that's a phenomenal idea. And I went, right, come on, we can make this happen. Let's make it happen. And about two or three months in, I couldn't understand why, why I was the only one working on the idea because I thought this is a fantastic idea. But this was all about my ego. And I thought to myself, I've come up with this idea and it's a brilliant idea and I'm fully attached to it. What I've missed is the opportunity to bounce the idea off of other people, to involve other people in it. And whether you're in an organization, you know, working on your own, on your own business ideas, you know, I think the thing that I've learned from that is, is, is not letting your ego think that the idea you've come up with is any good. It's just the start of something. And actually, you need to prototype it. You need to get other people involved. And, you know, I talk about often about the arrogance of ideas to go, like, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I've come up with this thing on my own. It's as a result of a thousand conversations that I've had over the years that suddenly I'm joining the dots because I'm open to what could this thing become? Rather than me attaching myself to it, it's, mu it's a much more collaborative process for me now. And the results have been off the chart. Well, and it's built off the books you've read, the TV shows you've seen, the shops you've walked past and bought stuff in. All of these have influences off us, on us. And we join the dots and build these ideas. Um, that's absolutely how it happens. So look, one of the things I want to do for the people listening is I want to turn creativity into a process. Or if you're American, a process. Uh, so that we can actually think through how to do this. So I, I want to look at how do you come up with ideas? What's the process and how do we do this? And is there a way to actually turn this into a repeatable process that we can help work on our own problems, our own issues and be creative about? That's what I want to do. Uh, are you up for it, Simon? I'm excited for this, Alan. I've got no idea what you're going to say. Let's, let's go for it. <laughs> Well, there's so many different elements to creativity, so many different elements. I think the first step is actually defining what you want to be creative about. I think that's the absolute first step, which is, well, you know the tool, you call it the current reality tool. I think it's a fabulous tool. But what's the challenge we're actually going to work on to get creative about? I think that's the first step. Yeah, and I think, you know, before we go and solve the problem, we need to know how we're going to feel about it too. And I think that's, that's the second part of understanding what the landscape is because they'll, you know, everyone looks at these things from different perspectives. It's about spotting. And you're absolutely right. The starting point is what, what are we trying to solve here? And, and that, that question usually stops the, um, the spinning around in circles. You know, you know what it's like when you go like, well, what about this? And what about that? I don't know about this. And I don't know how that would work. And what about this? But wait a minute, What's the problem that we're actually trying to solve? And we spend a whole bunch of time looking for answers, nowhere near enough time asking the right question. 
Absolutely. So I would take that time to go, okay, what is the issue? Uh, If you're running a business, is the issue not enough sales? If you're running a business, is the issue that customers don't love the product? Is the issue you don't have enough time? Uh, If it's at home, let's just take family life, you're homeschooling your kids. Is the issue that the kids need the best education at home, but you're not prepared for it? What is the issue? And the better you can define the problem, the better you can go to stage two. There's a couple of brilliant tools for this. Design thinking is one of them. Um, the old consultant's favourite, um, if I cast my mind back, was the five WH, you know, asking why five times and then asking how at the end of that. So, you know, the problem is, like, I can't get enough sales for my business or why? Um, because I can't get enough customers or is it because the messaging is wrong or I don't know who my customer is? Why? Well, I haven't done an analysis on who the customer is. Why? Because I'm short of time. I don't seem to have any time for these things. Why? Well, because you know I'm busy with the kids and I've got my day job. And so the question is, how can I create the time to focus on my sales properly? So that 5WH tool is super powerful. It's very simple. Ask why five times and then ask yourself the how question at the end. Which brings us to turning the problem into a question, which I think is step two, is taking the issue, the challenge, and turning into a question that you're actually jazzed, juiced, and excited to answer. How do you turn a problem into a question, Simon? I'm just excited that you've used the words jazzed and juiced in the same sentence, Alan. So just give me a moment to get past that for a second. I couldn't come up with a third J that quickly. (laughs) I bet you could, but not for this. I think look, it's a great question. I, th- I think you know we've got definitely got to start with the how. You know, the business that I used to work in before growing pop up business school with you was absolutely. I taught me so much about this. About you know what what does a decent question look like? You've definitely got to start with a how. Don't start with a why, because why is just going to give you a list of things as to reasons why it's not working. It's but a how opens question. it up to yeah. You you got to open up to possibilities. So the the purpose of asking a question is that you narrow your focus on one particular aspect of something, but you open up the words so that you've got the most possibilities. So if I was going to ask a question, I'd be starting it with how could I, or how could we, or how might I, or how might we? And that was the stuff I learned, you know, a few years ago. And then what, where you take it from there depends on what the outcome of your 5WH stuff is all about because it's going to give you the area to focus on. So, you know, being specific, the how could we opens it up to lots of possibilities. And I guess the third thing on my mind is, like you said, about you using language that excites you. Because if you read your question back and you, you make that sort of oh, sort of sound, then it's not a very good question. And one of the sessions that I ran a few years ago for a bunch of leaders, very entrepreneurial people actually, they had a challenge in their business about internal communication and they said, we're not very good at it. Are we? We're really high performing team, but we're not very good at making friends with other parts of the organization in our business here. So the question they asked themselves is how could we get better at internal communication? And they all sort of looked at each other around the room and went, yeah, I'm a bit busy for that. I don't think I can solve that problem today. I've got other stuff that's more important. So just by changing the language of the question, how might we, or how I think we said something like, how could we become role models at brilliant communication internally? They all looked around the room at each other and they went, role models? Brilliant. Yeah, that's us. Yeah, I'm in. They, got, you know, <laughs> they, were, they were all over that. And it was just it was exactly the same challenge that they were trying to solve. But the language that they used was more exciting. It was more engaging. And look, you know, everybody's busy. We've all got other stuff we never get to the end of our to-do list. There's always something else to do. So if you've got something that's important to solve, you've got to make it sound exciting for you and the other people that you're going to involve in it because they need a reason to stop what it is that they're doing and flip their attention onto something else as much as you do. So language is so important in creativity for sure. Which that brings me on. If I could sum up that little section in one statement, it is the quality of the question you ask determines the quality of the answers you get. And if you're asking a tough question that people don't find exciting, they're not going to play. So it's the quality of the question. So let's just take, you started the sales example. So let's just continue that on. 
a sales question might be, how might we get more sales? Well, how jazzed are you to go out there and get more sales? Maybe not. Maybe there's a better question. How might we get customers coming to us? How might we treble the sales this year? How might we treble the sales this year and have fun whilst doing it? Well, that's a better question. That gives me more juice. Um, And it's the quality of the question determines the quality of the answers you get back. It's like putting a, a lens in front of the problem and looking at, you know, it just helps you to look at it from a from a place where you have more energy. And I've never come up with any ideas and neither have I seen anyone else come up with any decent ideas worth remembering when your energy levels are low. And actually, you know, thinking about the environment where we're coming up with ideas is really key. And I think, Alan, you and I have had some of our best conversations when we've been outdoors striding through central London. By the way, you do walk a little bit too fast. You you move like a snail, Mr. Payne. You move (laughs) like a snail. It's like, come on, I need energy. Let's go. Yeah, this is good. But uh, but I need to be able to breathe as well. Uh, it's some sort of Greek marathon power walking that you do. It's definitely not normal walking. But anyway, <laughs> some of our best ideas we come up with when we're outside. I had some fantastic ideas just last night after finishing a, a Facebook live stream with Jack and the team. You know, because we've got energy and we're, we're pumped by the conversation that we've just had. That's when the ideas keep going. And I think, you know, it's really difficult to come up with ideas when you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders and and all that kind of stuff. The language in the question really helps. You know, if I was asking a sales question, how might I triple my sales in a quarter of the time? That's going to generate ideas that you would never normally think of because we, we we have to put ourselves in a place where we can look at this stuff from different perspectives so that we can get a richness of ideas. And that might not be the right question for you because it might not solve the right challenge that you're trying to solve. But looking at these different types of questions that you can ask, you know, how, how might we become the rock stars of selling? How might I become the best salesperson ever? How, how can I think differently about sales to get me excited? How can I double my sales ethically whilst doing the best for my customers how can i make my customers into salespeople for me Ooh, i like that question i love that question can we just quit the podcast and work on that for pop-up <laughs> quick yeah let's, uh, get, let's make a phone call now let's get jimbo on the phone so step one is define the problem step two turn the problem into a question and the quality of the question you ask will determine the quality of the answers you get. And then step three is the creative brainstorm. Um, now, there is a lot, a lot of different ideas about this stuff, Simon, but it's the the brainstorming bit. What would your initial advice be on the flow for getting the ideas out? Uh, for me, uh, this is my favourite bit. This is my favourite bit. It's counterintuitive in some ways, because I used to think, you know, I don't want to process for creativity. I, w- I want to blue sky thinking i want i want a blank sheet i want a giant wall where i can just generate ideas but actually if you've got a process and different types of processes within the brainstorming the quality and the volume of ideas is like a hundred times i can't tell you how important this bit is because it's almost like we put we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to go okay here's a problem and then we all look at around the room at each other and go right has anyone got any great ideas has anyone got any anyone got no anyone Someone, please, somebody have an idea. But some of these brainstorming processes, I absolutely swear by. The first thing that I would always do is, like, what's front of mind ideas? What's the, what stuff have we done already? What stuff have we tried? And what kind of results have we got from that? Just to kind of get us in flow. Because once we've got that stuff out, it's a lot easier to allow the room for new ideas to then come in. So front of mind stuff, what's the first cut of initial ideas that I've either, I've either had or that we've tried or at least started to, to implement and what have been the results from that? Because that's going to generate some new things. There's, the next one is one of my favorites, which is it's the, it's the sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like the, the, the antidote, that's the word I'm looking for, the antidote to overthinking. And as you know, I like a good think. 
but the antidote to that is instead of you know thinking because when we when we're coming up with ideas we te- especially as adults we tend to overanalyze things too much a little bit like i'm doing now so you're just going to go right you've got 60 seconds to write down as many ideas as you can so that you don't judge them because it's not about judging at this stage we'll judge them later and i, I wanted to ask you about the disney strategy because i can't remember that i know that's one of your favorites um, and it's just about going in 60 seconds, come up with, see if you can get to 20 ideas that you could do, knowing that some of those 20 ideas are going to be absolute nonsense. But it's not the idea itself. It's treating the idea like it's a train of thought. So, for example, if we go, well, let's solve some problems that like, we want to generate a, um, a really cool entrepreneur's retreat. We go, fantastic. Let's go and rent an island off of the coast of Africa and then we'll fly out, you know, fly everyone out there. And then you might, in your own head, you might be killing off that idea going, well, that will never work, will it? Because we've got to get people's vaccinations. We can't afford it. Expensive. Yeah. yeah, all that stuff. But actually, no, it's not the idea. It's treating the idea as a train of thought that you that you write down. And by the way, writing the thing down is a critical part of the process that i didn't really discover until probably till i met you actually you were the king of writing things down everything um so so yeah so does that trigger your thought oh, tell me about the disney strategy alan what, remind me of what that was again because that's that's a really cool process that helps to separate stuff out doesn't it it's incredible just before we do that i just wanted to add in to your little bit which is what's the quickest way to have a good idea have lots of ideas because you you get the manager who comes up to the front and goes right we're going to think about this problem who's got a good idea and in your head everyone's going i'm not sure if my idea is good yet uh, i don't know the only way to know have you ever had something that's in your head that you think sounds amazing then you say it out loud and you go oh i wish i'd never said that Uh, or vice versa, some of the ideas you think are average, you say it out loud and people go, wow, that's a good idea, and you weren't expecting it. And the thing is, you you don't know if it's a good idea until you put it out into the world. You just have to say it. So I think the quickest way to come up with a good idea is just to put all the ideas out there and then evaluate them later, which does bring us on to the Disney creative strategy. And this, this is the bit that really makes a difference for me in creativity, is... Disney split out creativity into three phases. He called the three phases the dreamer phase, the realist phase, and the critic phase. And actually what I think most people do wrong in creativity is they try and do all three of these in the same meeting at the same time. And I'm sure you've got plenty of examples of this, Simon. What you've got is you've got a bunch of people around a table. Someone goes oh, I've got this idea, and they're dreaming. Someone next to them goes, yeah, I'm not sure how we would make that work. That's the realist, the how-to. And then someone over the other side goes, yeah, that'll never work because of this, this, and this. That's the critic. And the critic comes in far too early and kills the idea before it's ever out. And I think the magic of the Disney is it separates out the phases The problem with most corporate organisations, most business, most brainstorming, most idea creation is they try and do all three at once. I mean, have you got any examples of where people have tried to do criticism, realism and dreaming all in the same meeting, Simon? I had an engineer that he was an aircraft engineer, actually, a senior guy, and he wrote on a post-it note whilst I was talking. And he said, we tried that in 1983. He wrote it down. We tried this in 1983. It didn't work then, and it won't work now. I think you're a bit stupid. And then he tore <laughs> off. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, I've only just met you. You need to, you need to spend at least a couple of hours with me to know I'm stupid. You don't get to say that in the first fifteen minutes. And he tore off the post-it note and gave it to me. The, the brilliant bit about it was that uh, he'd written on the post-it note the wrong way round. So the sticky bit was the same side as where the writing was. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this guy's an airline engineer. <laughs> oh my goodness, we're in big trouble. Um, but, you know, there is that thing of, you know, we're very, very ready to kill off ideas. And actually, you know, the, the ideas that we're kicking around at the moment in the pop-up business school, we've been riffing those for a few months. And actually, every time we say it out loud, it tightens the idea, it changes the idea, it moves it along. If we'd have killed it off in the early days, 
then this thing would never happen. And actually, it's got the potential to be game-changing, but not when you first say it, not when you first write it down, not when you first design it. We don't go from zero to amazing idea, ta-da, in one step. No. It's definitely a process. And what I love about the, the Disney strategy is that it allows you to dream. And I think that the word that I use a lot with creativity is play in the same way that a musician would, in the same way that an artist would, that we just play. We're just going to sketch some things. Let's just come up with stuff that makes us laugh. Let's just have energy. Let's play. You know, who can come up with the daftest idea? Who, you know, let's think of, um, if you were four years old, what ideas would you come up with? And it's, it's almost like you've got to put a lens between the problem and what the solution's going to be. And it helps us look at it from lots of different angles and just have fun. And I think some of the best ideas at Pop-Up Business School have come through play. It happened last night. Jack captured it on a post-it note. There's something that's going to go out on social media, which was just us playing with words. And I reckon probably in the last, I don't know, four or five years at least, we've we've probably generated, and I'm not exaggerating to say, generated about 100 uh, to 150 new business ideas just by playing around with words. You know, those, those fun chats that we have, Alan, and that, that sense of play is really key to kicking off that dreamer phase. I still want to launch Cajones coffee. <laughs> I've forgotten that one. Absolutely. <laughs> There's so many ideas. Um, but look, let's just, so the Disney creative strategy separates out this part and it allows you to play without the risk of judgment and criticism. And that's the bit I think here. The critic is important, but if they come in too early, they kill your ideas. So what Disney would do was take himself or the team into a separate room, which he'd call the dreamer phase, and all they were allowed to do was come up with ideas. No working out how it would work, no criticising, zero criticising, just idea creation. And that's actually the first step is get as many ideas as you can down. Now, if you've got a challenge with your business, my suggestion to you is to come up with 50 ways of solving it or 100 ways of solving it. As many ideas as you can. Now, when I say that, people look at me and go, what do you mean 50 ideas? That's insane. What do you mean 100 ideas? Well, what happens is the first 10 you come up with will be the same 10 that you always come up with and the same 10 that probably haven't worked. And you actually have to push past your normal thinking to come up with better and bigger and different ideas. Then your brain starts to play. Then it gets stretched. Then you'll get to the midway point and go, there's no more ideas. You'll go for a walk. You'll go and sit on the toilet. You'll do whatever you do. And 10 more ideas will come to you almost instantly. And it's the challenging yourself to come up with this giant volume of ideas because the quickest way to have a good idea is to have lots of ideas. And 90% of them will be rubbish, but somewhere in there, there is gold. If you don't stretch yourself, you'll never find that gold. I love that. And some of the techniques that I've used over the years, especially again recently, actually, are things like, what would we do if we had to do 10 things tomorrow morning? I love these what frames. Do? Yeah. yeah, this is exactly. the different frames for it. I love they're, that one. They're game changers because they just help you look at the problem from a different angle because our perspective is our perspective. And if you want a richness of ideas, you've got to jump out of that. I think like the one thing that I would want to share with everybody is we are all surrounded by critics. Uh, sometimes they're in our own heads. Sometimes we've created what we think someone's going to say. But sometimes our friends and family, out of their desire to want to protect us and help us they are the ones that say yeah that won't work because of this or this won't work because of that yeah that won't work will it and that kind of stuff I, I just wanted to share that my tip for dealing with that is keeping myself in a positive headspace and then reframing their challenge as a question immediately because they, they might say yeah but you know there's already there's already 20 craft businesses in this town what makes you think, you know, you're going to be any good, you know? And, and I say, well, that's, that's cool. So wh what's the challenge? Okay. So how could I differentiate from all of the other craft businesses? What's my angle? What, how could I do that differently? 
And by reframing someone's someone's critique of your idea or even your own critique of your idea into a question, it helps you stay in that uh, that creative space. It's like the antidote to to the the negative ninnies. You know what I mean? I love that, Simon. Uh, I think that's actually a better strategy than mine. My strategy is I don't tell them. Or if I do and they've been negative, I just go off and do it anyway. And then I come back and prove it's done. I don't wait for them. They actually really drive me mad. And there are quite a few people that I've literally stopped sharing ideas with because they're negative and they kill my ideas. They kill my energy. They kill my motivation. And I need to be protective of that. And I will not share ideas with those people. I will go and find the yes and people, the creative people that can help me build the ideas, not the people who can tear them down. Maybe I go and present it to the people who can tear it down later, but only once the idea has grown to a level that it can withstand the critic. And I think this is the bit. The critic is important, but not too early. So phase one, dreamer, come up with as many ideas as you can. That's the divergent thinking. And what we mean by that is you're just going so many ideas. Your thinking is divergent. You're coming up with so many ideas. Step two is convergent thinking, where you converge on the one or two or three ideas that you actually want to take forwards. And you choose, like, this idea sounds great. Let's develop it. This one too. Most of the ideas we'll leave behind, but one or two of them we will converge on and we will develop. And those are the one or two ideas that you take through to the realist phase. And the realist phase is the how-to. How do we make this happen? How do we make this real? How do we get going? And you build a plan. You work out how to actually do this. And all of a sudden, the idea will start to feel real. Oh, we might actually be able to do this. This is possible. And after that idea has grown through the realist phase to a stage that it can withstand the critic, then we take it to the critic. And the critic says, what could go wrong? What's not right? What are we missing? What's bad? And it will find everything that's wrong. The critic is actually really important to strengthening ideas. It's just a timing issue. If the critic comes in too early, it'll kill your idea late, to kill your idea dead. If the critic comes in later, the idea's had enough time to grow then the criticism can actually improve it and help it grow further rather than kill it. So that was the Disney creative strategy. And that is absolutely what I would be using at this point to work through the question that you've created. Yeah, this is all good stuff, Alan. This is all really good stuff. And just to talk to that dreamer phase, for me, you know that this is really key because it's about creating the conditions where ideas can emerge and flourish and people thought i was crazy about six months ago i made an announcement and said i'm banning all new ideas and they looked at me like what do you mean you're back you can't ban new ideas that's what that's what we do at pop-up business school it's all about ideas and i said that what i mean by that is Let's just take the ego out of an idea because when people share an idea, they're attached to it. They go, this is my idea and I want to share it with you. Well, no, it isn't really because it's an amalgam of all of the ideas and conversations and you know influences that we all have around us. And we're constantly riffing. So let's just, let's just take the word idea out for a second. And this was a game changer for me personally is I'm just going to share my train of thought and I'll start my sentences with instead of saying, here's my idea – because then I might, I might fear what you're going to think about my idea. What I'm going to say to you is, look, I just want to share my train of thought. Because what you just said then, it makes me think of this. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm starting to explore the different opportunities, and sometimes just taking the pressure off that it needs to be a really good business idea to start. You're, you know, the conversation I'm having with myself at the moment is about this, this idea, but it's just a train of thought. It makes me think of this. What does that make you think? I love it when you do that to me, because this is the magic of our conversations and why it works so well is you go, let me share my train of thought. And you speak for about two or three minutes with lots of different stuff and ideas. And then I have this moment of that one. And I kind of reach into what you're saying, pick out the bit and then go, what about this? We could do this, this and this. And all of a sudden we've got a great idea that we've generated together. But your language allows me to do that. 
Yeah, and it's the self-talk within that as well. And, uh, you know, our confidence levels link to our, our, our thoughts about, you know, how capable am I to make this idea real? Let's just separate that stuff out of the way. And like you say, the Disney stuff is really, really helpful to deal with the critics. They're important but you know they've got to come later. But we know we all know who we're going to ring if we want someone to pull apart our idea. We all know who we're going to speak to. But let's just make sure we do that at a time when we've had the chance to build it up and make the things stronger before we allow someone to pull it to bits. You know. Yes, and you might well be related to that person. <laughs> let's not go there. So we've got. Define the problem. Turn the problem into a question. Use the Disney creative strategy and some of the frames we've been talking about to come up with ideas. Put them into the realist phase. Develop the ideas. Then help the critics strengthen them. Then we're converging on what's the one thing we're going to do next. And I think this is where I really want to draw this together is. I think it was Tony Robbins that said this. Never leave the scene of an idea without taking action on making it real. And that, that has absolutely driven me for the last five, six, seven, eight years with as soon as Simon and I come up with an idea, I immediately go to, well, how do we make it real? We've decided to do it. Let's do it now. And I think that's been a game changer for our business and our way of acting, hasn't it, Simon? Yeah, absolutely that. And I think it reminds me of a thing that I've done a few times, the Marshmallow Challenge, which I think was a TED Talk, um, Tom, yes. Tom Wujek, I think. And the learnings from this being that, you know, you've got a bunch of sticks of spaghetti and a marshmallow, and they, they ran this experiment with lots of different groups. And, you know, who, who had the, uh, the most successful structures built out of spaghetti and a couple of bits of tape and a piece of string? I think you get a meter of string or something and um f- for those groups that they could certainly out of the the children that they ran it with in kindergartens kindergartens were the second best performing teams when they were building structures to support the marshmallow number one being so you know civil engineers structural engineers as you might expect they would have a, a few insights on how to build a structure to support a marshmallow um, some of the adult groups and some of the kids groups, I think, ate the marshmallow before they could finish the challenge. <laughs> I think that's to be expected. But but what was fascinating was that kindergartens were prototyping their ideas and making them real much earlier in the process. So, you know, groups of adults, especially CEOs, we, we were some of the worst performers because we were, you know, thinking about strategizing and only getting the marshmallow involved when there's sort of two minutes to go on the challenge. And then we realized that the spaghetti didn't hold up the marshmallow and it was all too late because there's only a couple of minutes left. Whereas the youngsters, they get the marshmallow. For those that don't eat it, they look at it and go, let's just stick it in a bit of spaghetti and see if it stands up. Oh, no, it falls over. I think I need a second bit. Oh, no, that falls over too. Oh, a third bit. Oh, a little spaghetti tripod. That kind of works, doesn't it? And I think this this thing about you know launching an idea as a ta-da is is the reverse of what my and our experiences of of creating ideas and making them real. We've got to experiment with them much, much earlier and use those live experiments in order to shape the thing. And that requires a little bit of courage because it means you've got to talk to people. It means we've got to sell before the thing's even made. That stuff that we've learned over the years is the difference between an idea going to the graveyard with all of the best of the other ideas that that are there or actually, you know, becoming something that's real. Absolutely. And I think it's that drive just to, as soon as the meeting's over, who can we email to sell it? Do you think this is a good idea? Would you buy it? Who can we speak to? How can we make it real? Oh, we want to do an event. Well, let's just book it and put it online and see what happens. And I think that drive to take an idea and make it real, you will know whether it works or not very, very quickly. And that's actually the key, because not all ideas that come from this process are actually going to work. The only way to know if an idea will work or not is to test it, to do it, to act on it and to make it happen. So as soon as you had the idea, and this absolutely makes people that I work with uncomfortable and the people on our courses come comfortable because they say, I've had an idea and I go, well, let's do it. Um, I don't know if you remember this one, Simon. There was a a lady on the course in Longmont who said she had an idea about a business to help with vets, uh, veterinarians' mental health. And she said, I think I know the customer. 
And I looked at her and said, well, why don't we email him now? You should have seen her face. He was like, what do you mean email him now? I was like, well, we've got an idea. Let's see if he's interested. And she did it. She sent the email. We got a message two days back saying, this is really interesting. When can we speak on the phone? But it's taking that idea and instantly doing it. I think most people take ideas and they hold on to them for the next 10 years. And by that stage, someone else has done it. Yeah, that's the perfection paralysis for sure. And that, and it's, you know, fears behind it. And, and I, I remember someone that started a uh, coaching business, but it took, it took them two, about two and a half years to get the thing out there because uh, they weren't happy with the logo. There weren't enough petals in the flower in the logo, or it was the wrong pastel shades, or it didn't, the, let, the lettering wasn't quite right. Well, actually, if you haven't spoken to any of your clients, you don't know if they want your stuff yet. And the only person that cares about your logo is you. And I think, you know, there's definitely, of course, some stuff around branding and so on. But you don't know what you're going to brand yet because you haven't really put it in front of anyone. And it's going to change as you experiment and prototype and speak to people. The idea that you start with probably isn't going to be the idea that you end with. It's going to take on a different form, you know, the further into it you get. Absolutely. Absolutely, Simon. So look, there's the process. This is what we want you to do. We want you to define your problem. So think about your business. Think about your life. What's your biggest challenge? Define that problem. Turn it into a juicy, exciting question. And then go through the Disney creative strategy to brainstorm ideas, turn it into a real thing, decide on what you're going to do, and then take action immediately. We would, Simon and I would both love it if you took that from this episode and had a go at it straight away. Now, before we have the closing message for the show, Simon, do you have anything to say to our audience at The Rebel Entrepreneur? I really want to hear the questions, Alan, the questions that people write down and uh, you know ask themselves to help them generate ideas. I would love it if people sent the questions so we could see them, because I think there's there's probably you know, a bunch of episodes that we could create around the questions that people ask themselves, but also the questions that they ask us too. So there's nothing that gets me excited more. You know, when I think about this stuff, about creativity, it's the quality of the question that's going to get the answers out there. So if we can, if people can share those questions that they write down as part of your, your challenge that you've set, I'd love to read some of those and talk about those in the future. Perfect. That is a great idea. Yes, send us your questions, whatever they are. If you come up with the question of how might I triple my sales uh, for X business, how might I do this, how might I do that, send us those questions. So this was episode 11, Ideas and Creativity. Episode 12 is how do you evaluate an idea and choose which one to go forwards with? Because that's actually one of the next challenges Simon and I have discovered people have is they have five business ideas and they don't know which one to start with, so they end up doing none. So join us in episode 12 for that. Thank you for tuning in to The Rebel Entrepreneur. You've been listening to Rebel Entrepreneur with Alan Donegan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get new, fresh episodes as soon as they've launched. To stay up to date with the rebellion, visit choosefi.com slash rebel. Thanks for joining the rebellion. The rebellion.